If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. As we begin our exposition of Romans 7, 14 to 25, listen to the prayer of a discerning believer regarding his Christian life, cited in Benjamin Clark's book, Delight for the Wretched Man. Throw light into the darkened cells where passion reigns within. Quicken my conscience till it feels the loathsomeness of sin. Search all my thoughts, the secret springs, the motives that control, the chambers where polluted things hold empire or the soul. Ernest Kevin makes the comment, to make prayers such as these will bring us increasingly to the place where we cry, O wretched man that I am. When Paul wrote these words, he sounded the highest note of sanctified experience this side of heaven. I concur with this observation of Ernest Kevin. I'm certainly not there yet by a long shot, for I myself do not yet truly understand the utter utter wretchedness of sin in my own life. This indeed is the brilliance of the Holy Spirit-inspired insight of the Apostle Paul as he surveys the nature of his own sinfulness and for which he cries out, O wretched man that I am. As we come to try and understand the essence of Paul's words here in Romans 7, We have three major subsections as we try to divide up verses 14 to 25. These three major subsections are as follows. Verses 14 to 17, verses 18 to 20, and verses 21 to 25. Each one of them is marked out by Paul's autobiographical statements of absolute fact. For instance, in verse 14, notice that he says, we know, we know. In verse 18, he says, I know. And in verse 21, he says, so I find. We know, I know, so I find. Those are the three markers which divide up for us the outline of this particular passage, which will take us a number of weeks to go through because of the importance of it. But as an outline, we could say that these statements of fact, Paul is going to give us three declarations of discernment. Three declarations of discernment about his own Christian life, which should also, of course, be a discerning declaration about your own maturing Christian life, and mine as well. For instance, in verses 14 to 17, we have first what I will give as the first declaration about our Christian life, and it is this. The law is good, I am very sinful. The law is good. I am very sinful. That's verses 14 to 17. Secondly, in verses 18 to 20, Paul says, No good dwells in my flesh. Evil is always present with me. No good dwells in my flesh. Evil is always present with me. That's declaration number two. And then he'll give, in verses 21 to 25, declaration number three. My mind delights in the law of God. The flesh serves the law of sin. 
My mind delights in the law of God. The flesh serves the law of sin. And you can see in all three of these very clear statements of fact, these declarations, these sayings of the Apostle Paul in verses 14 to 25, what he wants to summarize essentially about this battle of the Christian life between the law's goodness and sin's badness. He says, first of all, the law is good. I'm very sinful. Secondly, no good dwells in my flesh. Evil is always present with me. And the third declaration, my mind delights in the law of God. The flesh, however, serves the law of sin. I don't know that I can state it any more simply than those declarations in order for us to understand this very, very difficult passage. And this morning, I want to give us at least in part, the first of those declarations. The law of God is good. I am very sinful. Look at verses 14 to 17 with me. He says, does Paul, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, last week I told you that within all of the various options of whom this wretched man might be identified... I believe that he is to be identified as the Apostle Paul himself. I do not deny for a moment, though, that he is picturing all men who as believers are looking at the doctrine of sin in the context of their desire to please God. I don't deny that at all. Further, I don't deny that it is a picture of Adam. I can see very clearly that there are some Serious reminiscences of the person of Adam in this text. I guess even in one sense you can look at the Jews themselves, at least those of the believing remnant, and you can see a corporate dynamic within the remnant of those believing Jews who could see themselves in this text also. But I think, as I said last time, that autobiographically this is Paul. And this is a very mature Paul. Romans 7, 14-25 is the speech of a mature believer. The man, Paul himself, who is looking discerningly back onto his own lived Christian life and having done so, comments on the nature and the extent and the gravity of his sin. That's what he's looking at. And what you could say about Romans 7, 14 to 25 is that it is essentially none other than an extended commentary on Romans 7, 13. Look at it with me. Verse 13 of Romans 7. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. What is good? The law of God. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Did you hear, Paul? The law of God is good, he says, showing us that the real issue isn't God's law. The real issue is sin. That's the real issue. That's what we must battle. He clearly says in verse 13 that it is sin itself which produces death in him through What is good? The law is simply the instrumental cause. Sin takes the law and shows us how sinful we are. And it is all for the purpose of showing that very thing that man is wretched and this beast of his wretchedness is called sin. Through the commandment, Paul says, sin might be manifested for what it is. A restless evil that shows itself, in his own words, to be beyond measure. We call it the sinfulness of sin. 
the exacerbating nature of sin, the extenuating circumstances of sin, and the gravity of sin. That's what he's talking about here. Do you understand the emphasis Paul is placing on the nature and the extent and the gravity of sin when he writes that sin is beyond measure? It's almost as though he's saying sin because it's so evil and so wicked and so extensive and so notorious that you can't even measure it. It is beyond measure, the sinfulness of sin. And I suppose that the reason why Paul, beginning here in verse 14, switches to this autobiographical mode as he does is because he knows that the extent and the nature and the gravity of sin can nowhere be seen so closely and so clearly and so autobiographically than in his own life. Where, where do you need to go for a greater illustration to tell people about sin but to tell them through the lens of your own experience? That's what he's saying. You and I, when we talk about sin, we think of illustrations about sin from our own life, don't we? When we think about the nature of sin, the extent of sin, the gravity of sin, oh yes, there might be things that we could look at out there, but the real deal is what's in our hearts. And for this morning's hour, and because we're celebrating the Lord's table and therefore we have limited time, I want to focus upon that first declaration of Paul in this subsection, this first subsection of the passage, and that is, the law of God is good, I am very sinful. That's our thesis for the morning. Notice what he says in verse 14. This very first phrase of Paul in this autobiographical section. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, right out of the chute, verse 14, we find an extremely provocative statement by Paul that comes to us from his Holy Spirit-inspired pen and demands our extended attention. Because if this is the Christian Paul, if this is the mature Paul, how can he say that he is of the flesh? How can he say he's sold under sin? That's very provocative. Well, what's he communicating to us here? Doesn't this sound lot, not like a mature, growing believer? but a non-Christian? Well, remember in verses 7 to 13, he is detailing for us the relationship between the law and mankind's sinfulness. And especially for the Jews, when they hear what Paul teaches about the law of God, in verses 8 to 11, they could become very, very angry at what he appears to be doing in disparaging God's holy commandments. Look back at verse 8 of chapter 7. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, notice again the instrumentality of the commandment is through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's almost as though Paul is saying, look, if the law had never come, I would have been okay. But when it came, it slew me. It, it showed me my sinfulness and I died. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. And maybe those Jews are saying, are you telling me, Paul, that the commandment when it came, which is a life-promising commandment, proved to be death to you? Are you disparaging the law of God? Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, says it again, deceived me and through it killed me. And maybe there are those Jews and others who say, if it brought death to you, if it slew you, if it killed you, isn't that a bad thing? What does he say in verse 12? No. The law is holy. And the commandment, specifically that commandment on coveting, is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin. It wasn't the law. The law was just the instrument to bring sin to the surface. 
to unearth it. And immediately upon that now, he says this in verse 14, For, that's our little connector word, for we know that the law is spiritual. You see, he's defending again the law of God. He's saying the law is a spiritual thing. It's not an unholy thing. It's not an earthly thing. It's a good thing. The law, he says, is spiritual, pneumatikos which is derived from the word pneuma, which means spirit, which when used in the sense of the proper noun, when referring to deity, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. It's the same word, pneuma, which is coming from that very, very wonderful third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He is the hagios pneuma, the Holy Spirit. And what is produced by Him, including the very Word of God, as contained in the Ten Commandments of God, are by nature, Paul says, holy themselves. How can you say that the law of God is holy when the law is spiritual? And if the law is spiritual, then that means it comes from the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is God, how could something that comes from God be unholy and unspiritual and therefore bad? That's his logic there. The law is spiritual it comes from god it's not from this world it's from above these commandments are in their very essence everything except sinfulness they're good they're holy they're righteous they are of their very essence spiritual and holy and righteous and just and good because they are derived from the very holy one himself namely the holy spirit of god and so Right right out of the chute, Paul says, if you're asking me the question, the law exacerbates your sin, it unearths your sin, it uncovers your sin, I tell you, it isn't the law, the law is spiritual, it's your own sinfulness, it's sin itself, that's your problem, that's who you need to blame, not the law. This is the point Paul is making right here in the first part of verse verse 14. He's making a contrasting declaration about the law. Hence our outline point, the law of God is good. It's good. And we need this, don't we? We need this principle. Because what do we tend to do in our sinfulness? What do we tend to do? We tend to blame God. We tend to blame Him. We tend to blame His plan. We tend to blame His law. We tend to blame everything except where the blame needs to squarely lie, and that's our own sinfulness. This came home to me so powerfully yesterday. We were in Jonesboro at a basketball tournament for one of my children, and we were staying in a hotel, and we were getting ready to go over to the to the junior high where the basketball tournament was being held, and uh, some of our kids were swimming in a little pool there, and I was in my room, but it was right next to the swimming pool, and you could hear all of the language being spoken. And my kids at that time were the only ones in the pool, so I know it came from one of mine. And I heard one of them, one who was in charge of taking care of the rest of the little ones, say, now don't go and swim in the deep end of the pool. And I heard one of my younger ones say, I can do what I want to. Now, I'm not going to tell you which one it was, because frankly, in the spiritual dimension, it could have been you or me, right? Could have been you or me. That's what our heart wants to do when we hear the law. Now, don't go into the deep end. If you go into the deep end, there's destruction. There's a a drowning character to the deep end. I can do what I want to. I can go where I want to. I can say what I want to. That's the heart, even of a regenerate person. That's that's the dilemma. The law of God is good. Don't blame the law. Blame yourself. Blame, even in your regenerate condition, the heart that says, I can handle it. I can do it myself. And hence... That's the second part of our declaration. The law of God is good. I am very sinful. Oh, what an important declaration this is in the Christian life. The law of God is good. Now you say, yeah, but I'm telling you, 
You look at verse 14 and it looks like that's not coming from a Christian. Well, let me ask you this. If that's not coming from a Christian, if, if a person who's saying, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, if that's not coming from a Christian, you tell me about how a non-Christian can, in his heart of hearts, declare these things. Notice how Paul reiterates what he does right here in verse 14 about the law of God being spiritual. Say, for instance, in verse 16. I agree with the law that it is good. And he reiterates it once again. And notice what he reiterates again in verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now look, if that's not a Christian, you're going to have to do some exegetical gymnastics to tell me that that's an unbeliever who says he delights in the law of God in his inner being. And boy, there are some interesting interpretations that I've been reading of late. Somebody saying, well, what this is, is this is a, this is a non-Christian, this is like a Jewish person uh, who loves the law of God like an Old Testament person would, but he doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit to bring him to a place of having that in reality as a Christian. And I say, what? What? Doesn't make a lot of sense. That's not what this is saying. Hey, take this on face value. This is Paul saying, I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. And how could a non-Christian possibly say this in verse 25? So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I'm serving God. I delight in it. I delight in the law of God. I believe that the law of God is good. I love everything about it. You see, only two categories in the world. Two categories. Spiritual people and natural people. That's it. Spiritual people and natural people. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I want to show you this. And that's why we need to take a little bit more time this morning to talk about some of these things because of the importance of defining our terms. Especially when we get into this idea of that phrase from Paul here in Romans 7, I am of flesh, the flesh, and I'm sold under sin. We'll really have to define that carefully. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, notice the two categories. Verse 10. These things, 1 Corinthians 2.10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Remember what I said about pneuma, the Holy Spirit. For the pneuma, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S, searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit, small s, of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. We've received the Holy Spirit. What's that make us? Spiritual, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words. We impart this in terms of both Paul's teaching ministry and how we live our Christian life in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's one category of persons in the world. And then verse 14, the natural person, that's the other category, non-Christians. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. You have in that text then, very clearly, two categories of people, the spiritual and the natural, Christians and non-Christians. And, admittedly, there is a real dilemma in the Christian life, though, and it is this. Even with the affirmation that the law of God is good, it is also true in this already-not-yet tension of the believer's sanctification. We, though regenerated by the Holy Spirit at our conversion to Jesus Christ, we are still very sinful. And a mature, growing, discerning Christian recognizes this about himself. This is crucial to understand. You've been transformed out of the realm of the natural into the supernatural. Out of the realm of the earthly into the spiritual. And even though that's true, you haven't already been transferred completely and fully into the realm of your ultimate glorification. And so you have to battle sin. That particular book that I referred to at the beginning, Benjamin Clark, uh, whom I quoted from earlier, at least from Ernest Kevin in that book, writes this, 
It is a sad reflection on the shallowness of much of contemporary evangelicalism that we find it difficult to identify this discovery of the hidden evils of the heart with authentic Christian experience. Whenever the Holy Spirit is present in a human heart, He provokes conflict with sin. The more there is of the Spirit's ministry in our hearts, the more will the depths of inbred sin be discovered and the greater will be the resultant spiritual conflict. He's right. You know what he's saying and you know what 1 Corinthians 2 is saying? Here's the Spirit. Here's the natural dimension. Here's what is the realm of the Holy Spirit and His dictates and His will and His, His regenerating us and empowering us to live the Christian life. And here's the natural dimension, which is the demonic, the earthly, the sensual. And this conflict of the spiritual will be in our lives because the Spirit provokes sin that still resides in the believer and when the spirit does that conflict arises and when it arises the holy spirit uses that to unearth to provoke to engender our own look at our sinfulness hence the conflict that's what paul is saying here in fact he says it explicitly in verse 14 with the flip side law of god is good But I am of flesh, the flesh, sold under sin. Wow! What a statement. What a statement for the Apostle Paul to make about himself. And that's why we say he's he's a mature, discerning believer saying this. He's saying about himself, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Wait a minute, you say. Wait a minute. Can this be a true Christian speaking here? I thought Christians were no longer of the flesh and sold under sin. Well, of course, this is precisely why it is that some struggle to interpret this passage as a true believer talking here right at the beginning. But I disagree. I believe that this is and can be a Christian talking. In fact, only a Christian really talking. And I believe it to be Paul. And I believe it to be a mature, discerning Paul speaking about the tension between spiritual activity and carnal activity at one and the same time. You say carnal activity? Yes, carnal activity. That's from that word flesh. Carnal. I am of the flesh, he says. The Greek word for flesh is sarks. And this is how Paul describes himself here. Now, some will contend, wait a minute now, that word sarks, I don't know all of the Greek text, but I know one thing, sarks, that's talking about a bad deal. Sarks is talking about the flesh. Sarks is talking about something evil. Sarks is talking about something wicked. Yes, it's true. But did you realize that it's used both of believers and unbelievers in the Bible? Yes, it is. Absolutely. If you're struggling with how Paul could be a believer saying that he is of the flesh. Let me see if I can help. This is very important. I want to give you this morning three ideas, three ideas of which sarks or flesh can be understood. Now, there are, of course, others, but I've done my best to maybe try to generally, and I hope not simplistically, give you three ideas about sarks that will help. First is what we might call categorical or constitutional carnality. I'll use C so that it will be very helpful to you. We could talk about carnality or fleshiness as categorical or constitutional. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is the first thing you have to do in understanding the use of the word flesh, like Paul says here, I am of the flesh, as it pertains to the New Testament, is to perceive that it has a categorical or a constitutional or maybe even a characteristic sense to it. Take whichever C you want. Categorical, constitutional, characteristic. Any of those will do. It is for those who are categorically or constitutionally or characteristically carnal. That means they're not a Christian. That means they're not a Christian. Yes, the Bible does say, and I agree with you, that flesh can mean, can define, and it certainly does, a person who is fully and completely fleshly. They're not Christians. They're not genuine believers. In fact, Paul does that for us here, even in Romans 7. Look at verse 5 of Romans 7. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's talking about a non-Christian. That's talking about an unbeliever. They're not simply of the flesh. They're living in the flesh. And their sinful passions are aroused by the law. So much so that it's working in their members. That means their thoughts and their actions. Everything about them, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional. They're bearing fruit for death. Spiritual death. He even says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh... Notice, they're living according to it. That's their pattern. That's their constitution. That's their category. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, you see the contrast, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on. Don't miss that. That's characteristic speaking. That's constitutional language. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Aha! Mind of the flesh does not submit itself to God's law. You remember what Paul says in Romans seven fourteen to 25, I delight in the law of God in my inner man. The law is good. I have no problem with it. But the one who is hostile to God, who is setting his mind, his life, his pattern on the flesh, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says it cannot. And then that characteristic statement in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh. Isn't that interesting? Paul says about himself, I am of the flesh, but now he says you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. You see, this is a categorical set of ideas here. The unbeliever is categorized completely and actually and fully by carnality. Now there's a second one. Comparative carnality. Comparative carnality. Carnality. In other words, there are some Bible passages that are used when it uses that word sarks or flesh in another way, and it's not referring to an unbeliever, but to a believer, interestingly enough. In fact, go over to your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'll show you. This is that very famous context of those carnally acting believers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it describes this kind of comparative carnality. These Corinthians were acting carnally, that is, they were being compared to those whose lifestyle is categorically marked by carnality. Uh, Paul is sort of giving them a comparison and saying, look, this is the way the world operates. Are you operating this way? Is this true of you? I know that it can't be true of you, but it looks like the way you're acting And specifically, he says in verse 3, there's jealousy and strife among you. And he's basically saying, look, that's the way the world operates. That's the way the world is. That's not the way you're supposed to be. And then he says to them, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Notice the as language there. I could not address you as otherwise you are, spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as you are acting when you have jealousy and strife among you. In fact, so much so that I could really refer to you as infants in Christ. Now notice, he says they're in Christ. They're believers. But they are acting like strife-filled, jealousy-mongering unbelievers. I fed you with milk, he says, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Hey, what about what I told you about being spiritual in chapter 2? If you're behaving in a human way, you're behaving naturally. And I'm telling you, if you're of the Spirit, you ought to be behaving spiritually. You see, they need to grow up. 
they need to progress in the Christian life and mature because they are Christians. You say, are they Christians? Is that describing a Christian? Look back at chapter 1. He very clearly says, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you, which always really gets me when I read that, because how could Paul always give thanks for these Corinthians as he describes them? But he says he does. That's the heart and hope of every pastor when he looks out upon the flock. I give my thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. Notice he doesn't say you were enriched in doing all of these sinful things you're doing. No, he's saying you have been enriched. You were given all kinds of gifts. You're not lacking, verse 7, in any spiritual gift. You're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. God's callings are irrevocable. This happened there in Christ. At least the ones in Corinth who are in Christ. And the ones who are in Christ, He's saying, you are infants in Christ. You've got to grow up. This is a comparative kind of carnality. When you look at the comparison of what the world does, you're doing some of those things. You better stop. You're spiritual people. Don't act like them. So... Non-Christian can be described by flesh. An infant Christian, an immature Christian can be described by that. It's what I suppose we could say is a relative level of maturity, right? It's relative. All maturity is relative. Everybody who's in Christ is on a relative level, a relative scale, a spectrum of maturity. And these are on the infant side of the scale, the infant side of the spectrum. But then there's a third Maybe what we could call contemporaneous carnality. Contemporaneous. That just means that carnality for every single believer, every believer without exception, is contemporaneous with their defeat of sin, with their confession of sin, with their battling sin. Sin is going to be contemporaneous in their life with who you are as a maturing, growing, battling Christian. As you grow in Christ, as you see sin decrease in your life, as you see holiness and righteousness increase in your life, and you're excited about that, and you love that fact, and you delight in the law of God and your inner man, and you want to do the right thing, and you want to say the right thing, and you want to be a holy person, you want to read God's Word regularly, you want to pray to Him, you want to commune with Him, you want to serve the body of Christ, you want to reach out in an evangelistic thrust to those around you, and while you're doing all of that, what's going on with sin? Well, it might be less, and surely it is, in this relative scale or spectrum of growth. But is it gone? No, not on your life. It's, it's wanting to rear its ugly head. And as I said to you last week, sin is never more seductive when it is most hidden. And it is right around the corner. Sin wants to, to jump out at you like that poisonous snake. And when you think you're doing well, and when you think you're really, really swimming along in the Christian life, then all of a sudden that shark comes to bite you. And don't you know it? The, sh- the shark always smiles before he bites. Wants to grab you. Wants to take you. And there's this battle. It's a contemporaneous battle. No wonder Paul says, wretched man that I am. Oh, I see it so clearly. I'm discerning it so clearly. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now he says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, he does it. Then he turns right around and says, I I find this principle. With my mind, I'm serving the law of God. With my flesh, I'm serving sin. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's why he doesn't stop there, beloved. That's why he doesn't stop with, thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has to say, but there's still this battle. There's no triumphalism there. It's not that he says, look, I I come to a place in my Christian life where I see things so clearly, so discerningly, that I say, thanks be to God who delivers me, and he's done it, and he's done it now, here, in space, and time, and I don't have to battle sin in my life. 
He says, no, thanks be to God, and that's coming one day, and I praise Him for that, but it's not here yet. And I continue that battle in my discerning mind, this mature mind, this relative level. And if the Corinthians were over here on the infant side of the spectrum, Paul is over here on the maturing side of the spectrum. And he says, thanks be to God, but I'm, I'm serving this principle of sin too, and I hate it. And I want to be rid of it until I'm removed from this body of death which is not simply and only my own physical body, but also my regenerated yet sinfully earthbound thoughts and actions. I will continue to serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I'll serve the law of sin, the principle of sin. And once again, I reiterate to you something so that you will not be confused. The big difference between the relative level of maturity of the Corinthians and Paul was the degree of grief that they were exhibiting toward the Holy Spirit. The degree of grief toward the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, what does that mean? Do you realize there's a big difference between the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, you realizing that sin because of His convicting power, and then you saying to the Holy Spirit, I've grieved you, I don't want to do that, I confess that, please forgive me, I thank you that in light of the forgiveness that you've granted me in Christ, I don't want to do that sin, I don't want to be characterized by that in any way, I want to see that sin in my life excised, versus somebody who when they're also convicted by the Holy Spirit, maybe in the same category of whatever that other sin was for the other person, and they reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit's conviction. See, that's a big difference. That's a big difference. And as these Corinthians, they were strife-filled and jealousy-born, and they were rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that they were not moving as they should along the relative level or path of the maturity that they should have been. That's why he says, look, I've been feeding you milk, but you've got to have solid food. You're not growing as you should. And all the while, Paul says about himself, amazing statement, I am of the flesh. Same phrase, by the way, is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3. He says, you're of the flesh and I'm of the flesh. But there's a big difference between the two of us. You're infants in Christ. I'm growing, maturing, loving Christ, wanting to deal with my sin, wanting to say no to the sin that's ever before me. And he even says in verse 14, when compared to that standard, the standard of the law of God, The law of God is holy and righteous and just. And when I see that law of God before me and I see its perfect and just and holy character, I say to myself, I want that. I want that law in my heart. I want to live that out. I want to deal with my sin. Well, that's that's a mature guy. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I just want it to come out more and more and more in my life. And I want to say no to sin. Oh, but it's ever before me. Crouches at the door. It's like Billy Sunday, the old turn-of-the-century evangelist that says, temptation is looking at Satan through the keyhole, but yielding is opening the door and letting him in. Yeah, I just I want to keep that door shut. But what is it about me where I put my hand on the handle and I open it just a crack to see what sin is like and then it grabs me again. Oh, wretched man that I am. You say, I'm not convinced. Still not convinced. This is Paul talking about himself here, talking about himself as a mature believer. I think that this is really talking about a guy who maybe sort of in his pre-Christian Judaism is is looking at the law and he's saying how the law slays me and I'm of the flesh because I'm characteristically an unbeliever? I think not. Listen to John Murray. Since the flesh and sin still inhered in the apostle and exercised a power over him, it is, necessary, it is the necessary reaction of his sanctified sensibility to deplore the captivity to which, in the nature of the case, he was subjected by reason of indwelling sin. This is an issue of sin, indwelling sin, absolutely. 
He says that the captivity to sin of which Paul here speaks is alien to his most characteristic self and will is abundantly attested by the verses which follow. That's right. I delight in the law of God. I love God. I love His law. I I just find this principle within me that fights against that. John Murray says it becomes clear how different are the two states. That of one man who with resolute and abandoned will sells himself to iniquity. Do you hear that? Abandoning his will and abandoning his self to nothing but iniquity. And that of the other, like Paul, who reproaches himself for the sin he commits and bemoans his being carried away captive to it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Haven't you ever had in your own autobiography that sense in which you're saying, how is it that I can delight in the law of God? I can get up for that quiet time. I can do it for one day thinking that I'm going to start afresh. And by the second day, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I say, oh, I'm tired. Oh, boy, it's early. Oh, I'll just catch the preacher on Sunday. Maybe he's read his Bible. Oh, I'd love to pray more than I do. But I tend to fall asleep. Okay, well then stand up as you pray. No, no. That's too hard. That's too difficult. That would be taxing upon me. Versus that person says, yes, I know I fall asleep. And yes, I know how hard it is. But I'm going to do those things. When that alarm goes off in the morning, when it does that infernal... Don't you just hate that? And it's so early in the morning and you turn that thing off or you turn it on snooze 47 times. And what do you do? Well, if you delight in the law of God and the inner being and you want to be disciplined according to the Christian life and you want to commune with the living God and you want to read His Word and you want to separate yourself from the world and keep unstained by all of the reproach of this ugly, evil system, what do you do? When that thing goes off, you stand up. You stand up. And you say, I will not allow indwelling sin to so encroach upon my life that this day is like the previous ones. And it's not just you sort of getting it up yourself. It's you saying, Holy Spirit of God, infuse me, empower me. I can't do this without you. It's like Paul said in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. I want to I bring every man complete in Christ with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing them. And he says, and I want to do it with the power that mightily works within me. I'm agonizing. I'm striving. No question about it. But it's the power of the resident Holy Spirit who is in me, prompting me to say yes to Christ and no to my sin. And it's also, yes... The Holy Spirit provoking me, not just empowering me, but provoking me. And when He provokes, that sin is so stirred up. It's like dust in a dust bowl. And I look around and it seems overwhelming. And I see all those particles and they represent all the sins of my life. And I say to myself, how can I ever say no to this? And then there's despair. But then you remember that the Holy Spirit empowers you to grab all of that dust and blow it with His wind so that everything is settled once more. And you say, yes! That's the battle. That's where we are. That's what happens. We need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a reminder. What He's done on the cross to deliver me from this body of death. And it's not fully brought to me. It's not here yet. But one day it's coming. And I've been told to occupy till He comes. And I want to. It might be a fitting end to quote these marvelous words from the hymn of Isaac Watts, where he said this, How sad our state of nature is, our sin how deep it stains, and Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. 
But there's a voice of sovereign grace sounds from the sacred word, Ho, ye despairing sinners, come and trust upon the Lord. My soul obeys the Almighty call and runs to this relief. I would believe Thy promise, Lord. O oh, help Thy unbelief. To the dear fountain of Thy blood, incarnate God, I fly. Here let me wash my guilty soul from crimes of deepest dye. A guilty, weak, and helpless wretch, on Thy kind arms I fall. Be Thou my strength and righteousness, my Jesus and my all. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Father, we do come to Your very throne room, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. And it is there we hope, we desire, as a maturing, growing Christian, to seek relief, to seek help, to seek Your resources, to seek Your empowerment, to say no to our sin because we are that wretched man. And even in our believing condition, sin indwells, sin encroaches. It is this sinfulness of sin, it is the sin beyond measure for which we long to be delivered. Lord, may this communion of ours, this collective gasp as a congregation, O oh, wretched men and women that we are, thanks be to You who delivers our bodies of death. And until then, we battle. And we thank You for giving us the promise that one day we'll be delivered from the very presence of indwelling sin. In Christ's name, Amen.